Let's end where we began. Why do we care so much about the first 100 days of a presidency? Why did this term, the first 100 days, become a historical cliche? We know there's nothing special about the number 100. If humans had evolved to have different numbers of fingers on their hands, we might focus on the first 64 or 128 days. What we care about is the early days. Enough of them that a president has had time to establish a track record, but few enough that we're still clearly in the first chapter. Setting a benchmark several weeks into a presidency, whatever number we use to demarcate it, serves a helpful purpose. It allows us to evaluate how well a new administration is functioning after it's had a chance to find its sea legs, and whether it has established a foundation that will serve it well for the coming years. We began amid a flurry of executive actions, staffing changes, the transfer of Senate control into Democratic hands, and big ambitions for precariously narrow governing majority. A lot has happened since then. President Biden's big week so far and a big week to come. Folks have good news. Everybody is eligible as of today to get the vaccine. President Biden announcing a new goal on greenhouse gases. Now we're gonna begin with a big announcement. President Biden approaching a podium outside the White House. President Biden placed climate change at the center of national policymaking. He confirmed a historically diverse cabinet. He built a national COVID-19 vaccine distribution program that has been among the most successful in the world. And on his 51st day in office, he did this. Today, with the American Rescue Plan now signed into law, we've delivered on that promise. At $1.9 trillion, the American Rescue Plan is the kind of accomplishment any president would love to log so quickly. Broad-based enough to make a meaningful and memorable difference in most people's lives. Multifaceted enough to encompass a range of challenges. Vaccine administration, unemployment, stimulus, childcare, health insurance. Most importantly though, it's big enough to support the economy through what will hopefully be the final months of the pandemic into a new dawn of rapid economic growth and human prosperity. And it passed Congress almost exactly as Biden proposed it. But Biden's first 100 days also included missteps. Just two weeks ago, the White House announced it would keep President Trump's historically low cap on refugees in place for another year. Biden reversed this decision in response to deafening backlash from his allies, but he won't set the new cap until May. He's made no move to end capital punishment at the federal level, despite having run against the death penalty, reportedly out of fear of political backlash. Biden also punted the May timeline for the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan before committing to a date certain withdrawal on September 11th of this year. It's too early, I think, to call these missteps failures, but they do suggest that the administration may be too intent on husbanding Biden's high approval rating even when doing so requires them to make poor governing decisions. And here's another point of ambiguity. Very little of what's happened these past 100 days gives us a roadmap for how the next 100 or 1,000 will go. And you heard why in nearly every episode of this show. The filibuster. The filibuster. The filibuster. The filibuster. The filibuster. Our guests this season included some of the country's most prominent voices on the biggest issues of the day. Climate change, economic inequality, labor rights, voter suppression. And they all shared one view in common. 
The rest of Biden's presidency will turn almost entirely on whether Democrats reform or abolish the filibuster. All of this progress we've discussed could be building to more. Biden could follow up on the success of the rescue plan by getting his jobs bill through Congress. He could respond to the wave of voter suppression laws coming online in GOP states with sweeping democracy reforms, including statehood. He could revitalize labor rights and set the country on a course to meet the kind of decarbonization goals we'll need to hit to save the planet. But most, if not all of these things, won't happen if the current filibuster rules remain in place. And whether Biden's legacy stalls out or continues to build could have profound consequences for the country, his presidency, and the Democratic Party. Even if an economic boom awaits us, will voters reward Biden and Democrats at the polls next November if Congress spends the next 18 months in gridlock and Republicans spend that time waging endless culture war? Can the Democratic brand become synonymous with things like worker rights and equality? The things that make Biden personally popular if his agenda stalls, if the minimum wage stays flat. That's the risk. Democrats preside over post-COVID prosperity, but gridlock returns, culture wars heat up, and the public, satisfied with the economy, votes on the basis of other issues. Voter suppression works. Republicans win back the House. Suddenly, everything including the faithful certification of the 2024 election, becomes uncertain all over again. So there's our ending note. Biden set a very high, high watermark for his first 100 days. But it could drop quickly. And it's up to Democrats and Democrats alone to prevent that. My guest this week is Heather McGee. She's the former president and currently a distinguished senior fellow of the think tank Demos and author of the new book, The Sum of Us. Her book is a roadmap for progressives who want to overcome the politics of white grievance to implement an egalitarian agenda in a multi-ethnic democracy. We looked back at the highs and lows of Biden's first 100 days and at what a recipe for success in the next 100 and beyond would look like. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon. It's so great to have you on the show. Good to be with you, Brian. So let's start with the look back. Um, first, I want to know what has exceeded your expectations since inauguration and what has disappointed you, but there's a catch. You can't include the vaccine rollout or the American Rescue Plan. <laughs> the whole plan. We can't, we can't just... <laughs> The two biggest obvious successes, like we're not going to talk about them yet. (laughs) Um, Okay, great. Well, what has exceeded my expectations has been the degree to which President Joe Biden, who is someone who was not always a narrative or intellectual leader on issues of race and racism, much less public policy, um, has nonetheless, with with actually great deafness, managed to weave in calls for racial equity and an understanding of how public policy has created the disparities we see today through most, if not all, of his public pronouncements and executive orders and uh, fact sheets. It really reads like the people on his team are very much kind of 
moving past a sort of willful blindness or a color blindness about the extent to which the government has been responsible for creating the inequities in our society. And that is absolutely exceeding my expectations. Okay, and give give me one area of uh, policy, anything where you think they should have dialed it up a bit. They they didn't they didn't really nail that one. Well, I think that the Biden administration, the Democratic majority in Congress, owe their power today to grassroots movements that kept some of the most marginalized people in our society taking Herculean acts of citizenship um, over the past, you know, six years, eight years. And the fight for 15 is obviously one of them. If you're making less than $15 an hour, you're living below the poverty wage. But that may not be in your American Rescue Plan. No, I put it in, but I don't think it's going to survive. It is a movement that has asked so much of some of the people with the least to give in our economy. And they have done it over and over and over again, striking, marching, testifying, changing consciousness, and to not move mountains, to force sort of the maximum pressure on the Democratic caucus to deliver on a $15 minimum wage when the polling was with them, the movement was with them, you know, the campaign promises were there, was, I think, one of the biggest disappointments that, you know, is going to reverberate for a long time until it's fixed. So the reason I set set this up that way is I think, generally speaking, what we've heard on this show is you get the pandemic and the rescue plan are, are the two biggest things that have happened mm-hmm. in the first 100 days. And think with a broader sense of relief that there's a competent government again. His nominees have have been generally very good. They're executing at a high level. Climate yeah. change is woven into uh, the calculation of everything they do. And so that's been great. Then the rescue plan put, uh, obviously, lots of points on the board because of how it came together, how big it is, how just how good of a bill it is. Um, but it, I, it also gave clarity, I think, to an economic vision that a lot of his critics found surprising, right? Having a president who's willing to say that- We can't do too much here. We can do too little. We can do too little and sputter, but again- We had Mike Konzel on and he emphasized how- Things like full employment matter a lot more uh, than just worrying about the deficit. That it does reflect a real change this time. And I think that's really important. So these are just huge pillars of change, but they're also, they're also kind of unique. So even though they're these big successes, it's hard to know what they telegraph about how things will go in a non-crisis environment. It does, yeah, absolutely. And I think that for my conversations with folks in the administration, just from what I've observed as an ordinary citizen, they're planning to continue to use a crisis footing because they're naming inequality and racial injustice and the crisis of our democracy, the corruption in our democracy, as crises. And that's a good thing, because I would agree with the administration that those issues are at a crisis point. Heather rightly points out that corruption in government is at a crisis level. And one of my personal disappointments with the Biden administration and the democratically controlled Congress is that they haven't signaled that they will rigorously and unapologetically uncover all of the corruption during the Trump years. You may remember author Ruth Ben-Ghiat from our fourth episode. 
She cautioned that Italian lawmakers paid a hefty price when they chose to ignore ousted President Silvio Berlusconi and all of his corruption. And he bears a striking political resemblance to Donald Trump. The center left was sick of Berlusconi dominating the news, and so they wanted to turn the page. The center left didn't pass any corruption reform, and citizens got very angry. And so that's a lesson for us. And you can imagine this fixation, you know, you feel with Trump and more Trump, Berlusconi, more Miss Berlusconi. But this was a mistake because Berlusconi came back in less than two years later and then he was more corrupt than ever. And there was no hope of any accountability. I feel like if I had to make one thematic critique of Biden and the Democratic majority over the first 100 days, it'd be like they have a theory that they can defeat all the forces of reaction, authoritarianism, corruption, with sound economic policy and good governing. Um, mm -hmm. And they're putting all their eggs in that basket, and it's a high-risk strategy. Mm -hmm. As opposed to? As opposed to a paradigm where they're doing all the good economic work that they're doing, but they're um, they're in engaged in a more thoroughgoing look back of what happened in the mm -hmm. Trump years, trying to root out some of the uh, longer standing corruption. I mean, there's uh, if, if you want to talk about this in terms of infighting within the Democratic caucus, there's some dispute in there about whether the anti-corruption provisions of HR one ought to survive, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that and so that they they are they seem to put less weight, I think, on how important those issues are to the question of what happens in the future and, and whether, uh, you know, whether we have uh, fair elections in the, yep. in the, in the coming cycles, um, whether a, a new authoritarian president might come in and, and reinstitute all the corruption that marked the Trump administration. And it, mm -hmm. there just doesn't seem to be a fullness of vision there. Yeah, I think you're probably right, Brian. I think they're feeling like, you know, the house is on fire and so they're the firefighters and, you know, the arson investigators are different people. Um, and I think that that is, you know, probably reflects a degree of, of bandwidth and focus, but I also think it, it reflects a little bit of orientation. And we saw this at the end of the Bush administration of wanting to mm -hmm. be progressive and look towards the future and do what is right and show the the counter case, right, of how a government should be run. I think to a degree I'm sympathetic to that because government is so essential to every single thing that the Democrats want and need to do to address all of those crises we discussed. And government itself is poorly understood and, you know, has pretty poor approval ratings among the American public. And so the sense of being focused on delivering as opposed to beating the drum that, you know, government has been corrupt, I can see how they could make the calculus that it's actually more important to show good government than it is to continue to, as if they were in a campaign, rail against bad government. At the same time, I do agree that they're seeding high political terrain on these issues of corruption. And in fact, the message research around how to frame H.R. 1 and the For the People Act is really actually shows that framing it around corruption is, is the best way to get sort of bipartisan and cross-ideological support. 
it would be a shame if Donald Trump remained the standard bearer for draining the swamp, right? If he still had mm-hmm. that as his his motto and not the people who actually want to root out corruption in government, which tend to want to obviously be, which tend to be Democrats. Um, and there's a way to do it, right? You can talk about the corruption in our democracy as the corruption of politicians picking their voters, uh, the corruption of big money and secret money in politics, as well as the corruption of, of of gerrymandering and of politicians who get into office and and don't think they can win again, so they uh, try to change who gets to vote and how. And that is all corruption, right? And I agree with you on the basic point that you know that is high political terrain. It has always been as long as I've been alive and it will be continue to be. And so we can't, you know, take our eye off that ball that we need to be able to, uh, both in the policy and the substance and in the messaging, uh, remember the way people of all ideological stripes feel cynical about their government and want someone to come in and, and clean house. One thing that's been dogging me about this episode specifically is sort of how to temper what I think is totally valid enthusiasm for how things have gone so far with the murkiness of what comes in the next 100,000 days. So the two most consistent things we've heard from our previous guests are, one, basically how pleasantly surprised they are by how Biden has done out of the gate. I've been kind of surprised. It's kind of been refreshing to hear how he sort of found a middle ground. My expectations were real high on climate, and I just think they're really doing well. I would say I I have been pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think Biden has actually been. So I was surprised he really went there on the policy. And the other is that all all the high-mindedness and righteousness in the world isn't going to amount to much if after the first 100 days his agenda dries up because Democrats can't bring themselves to get rid of the filibuster. Yes, that's right. Um, (laughs) I agree. (laughs) So if if you had asked me after... Barack Obama's first 100 days, how do he do and where things are going? I'd say, you know, he, he did a lot. There was the Recovery Act and uh, uh, the Ledbetter Act and a whole bunch of other bills. And now they're going to do financial reform and they're going to do health care reform and it's going to mm-hmm. take some amount of time. But he's off to the races and we can see pretty clearly, like, where they're going and what mm. it will take to get there. And with Biden, I don't have any sense at all because he doesn't have the same kind of majorities. Like, there's one vision of the future where they get it together, get rid of the filibuster and do a whole bunch more stuff. Mm -hmm. And then there's another realm where maybe they get one more bill through because they use budget reconciliation, or maybe they don't do anything at all. And I don't know how to weight those two possibilities. And so it's hard for me, uh, you know, hosting the final episode of a Biden First 100 Days podcast to say, you know, they set themselves up for better things in the future. I, I wonder what your sense is. Well, I think it is helpful to point your listeners towards something to watch, to know whether or not this administration will be a success on all of the goals that it set out or not. And, and that is whether the Jim Crow era relic of the filibuster remains. And it's it's really not much more complicated than that. This majority was put in Washington to govern the ideas and the policies that are still on the table that are mostly wrapped up in the American Jobs Plan and the American Families proposal are highly popular with, you know, in the 60 and 70 range, most everything in it from raising taxes to massive infrastructure spending to paid family leave and childcare 
and home health care, uh, canceling student debt, which is still on the agenda and being discussed. All of this is, you know, 60, 70 percentage point popular stuff. This should be easy to do in a well-functioning representative democracy. And yet we have these structural barriers to democracy, most of which were either designed to maintain white supremacy or were, you know, sort of honed in their current, you know, super format as as is the filibuster today to maintain conservative white rule. And it's really a question of whether or not the multiracial democracy that this country has been for the past 56 years uh, since the signing of the, the Voting Rights Act is going to be able to persist in the future as our country becomes more diverse and as an overrepresented minority of conservative white, mostly men, is seeing their power wane and therefore getting much more brazen about rigging the rules to basically sort of reinstitute reinstitute a white male property requirement in, in our democracy. And that's really where we see how racism and the structures of racism, the tools of racism, end up having costs for everyone. So I want to talk about how I think it would be helpful for, pe- for people to think about the future, but I want to do it through the lens of your book, The Sum of Us. In the intro, you write about how coming up in the policy world, the consensus within that world was that um, egalitarian policy would advance racial justice, but mm-hmm. we should not mention that because that's leading with our chin. We don't <laughs> want to activate white identity. The zero-sum mentality is like very easy to chin up in people. Um, And it's kind of funny because the first excerpts that I saw of the book came from enthusiastic liberal wonks of that school who I think they seem to believe that the book was an endorsement of that view. Uh, But then I read the whole thing uh, and I started thinking, maybe they, did they read it? (laughs) (laughs) You better read the book before you tweet about it. (laughs) Um, So here's where I think it's, I'm, I wanted my book to have a little bit for everyone. I wanted in many ways for this to be something that can help create a common story and conversation among, you know, the broad multiracial coalition that needs to to be the enduring governing coalition for an America that survives, much less thrives, right? And, And that's a big tent, and it includes a lot of different cultural backgrounds and ideologies. And my book has a very strong point of view, but it also comes from 20 years of working in that field and seeing those debates. And so on the one hand, you have people who were very much from that school who are sort of white progressives who wanna just get good economic policies passed. And my kind of case that I made that racialized thinking has turned white Americans away from vehicles of collective action, whether they're government or labor unions and collective bargaining, and has basically sort of been the Achilles heel of the progressive project since the civil rights movement, um, is fodder for them, right? So that white economist that I talk about in the beginning of, in the introduction, who says, let's not lead with our chin here by calling out the racial implications, he would absolutely say, ha, you're right, right? Thank you for, you know, digging through the social science research to show that white people are basically too racist to want to do anything that's going to help people of color. And so we should 
basically like wave our hands and try to pretend like it's not going to help people of color and just sort of sneak in some some spinach with, with the applesauce. But my book also has something for people who recognize the truth that just because we progressives don't explicitly talk about race doesn't mean race isn't highly salient and functioning at a full volume in the white political imagination and the white political consciousness nonetheless, even when we talk about things in completely, quote unquote, colorblind or race neutral ways. A, because of the way that Americans of all backgrounds live in a highly racialized and highly stratified society, and B, most importantly, and and sort of with, with increasing ferocity, it seems every year, the right wing is telling them that everything that the Democrats do is about race. And it's not because of what we've done. They've been saying this since Nixon, right? They've been saying this since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act and the party became the party of civil rights. And so there's this sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I try to offer a different way forward, both on the level of what story we need to tell and in the level of what policies we need to embrace. Here, uh, I tried to kind of write out a two-sentence upshot of the book. What Thank I, you. What I, okay. <laughs> we'll um, see. I could use one. <laughs> well, also tell me if I, if I, if I missed it because it's, uh, it's a whole book and this is just a couple sentences. But it goes something like, you can't trick a critical mass of white people into joining a multiracial, small-D democratic coalition by talking about broad-based economic and political reforms in totally deracinated terms. You have to both, as you put it, call people to their higher ideals and then persuade them that there's a world of cross-racial economic solidarity that will be better for them than the zero-sum world. And that's the challenge. Great. Good enough. Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) So that thesis strikes me as posing a daunting kind of communications challenge Uh where you you stipulate on the one hand that many white people find the zero-sum story seductive. Um, Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't take much, actually, for Republicans to activate white identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet you posit that you you can't create the unbeatable multi-ethnic coalition that we all kind of want to see without being pretty explicit about the racial implications of progressive policy. Mm -hmm. So how do you walk that line without doing the zero-sum people's work for them? So thankfully, we at Demos, in partnership with a whole bunch of allies in the movement and co-chaired by Anat Shankar Osorio and Ian Haney-Lopez, you know, did the work and did the deep research starting in 2017 and then actually ongoing to this day at the grassroots level across the country of people who are using this on the doors and testing it in communities and on different fights across the country we're able to come up with a general framework that we call the race class narrative, which does something a little bit different than just talking about racial disparities, which is often how people have been sort of conditioned to talk about racism. It's like if we're calling out racism, we're saying, you know, people of color are disproportionately likely to X, Y, and Z, right? And the problem with that way of telling the story is that A, it reifies 
the sense of a hierarchy of human value. And because the American understanding of structure and policy and the racism in our policymaking that created those disparities is close to zero, it just actually reinforces stereotypes in the white imagination and often depresses people of color who hear it. And so it doesn't actually foster that sense of sort of cross-racial solidarity. And so what we set out and discovered was that if we lead with a shared value that names race and class, and then, like, for example, um, let's say we're talking about whatever your race, gender, or religion, most of us work hard for our families. Like, every child, regardless of where they come from, deserves the opportunity to pursue their dreams, that kind of thing, right? Like, reminding us of our common humanity, which is actually an important place to start, And then saying that racial scapegoating is a weapon that economically harms all of us. And so you are actually putting a shot in your listener's arm and inoculating them so the next time they hear that racial scapegoating, which should be in about 30 seconds, right, in today's media environment, they have antibodies for it, right? They have antibodies that say, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 that is not true, that it's brown and Black people and immigrants and rioters in the street that are stealing the American dream. That is not true. When I hear that, I should try to follow the money. I should recognize that that's a tool of the elite that's used to divide us. And so it's a way to marry the populism with the the sort of call to racial solidarity, right? So you say things like, Greedy politicians and the corporate lobbyists that fund them pit our communities against each other based on what we look like or where we come from, making us believe that we can't all have what we need. I began to refer to this idea of what a multiracial coalition can win, which are these solidarity dividends. And that's the idea that, you know, our biggest problems we've got to solve together and that racial division and scapegoating and the political division uh, that happens because of it is standing in the way. And so things like cleaner air and higher wages and better funded schools, student debt cancellation, debt-free college, these are solidarity dividends that we can only win with a multiracial coalition and that would have a benefit for nearly everybody. That is a way that has been tested in a, you know from Minneapolis to Michigan to Florida to Maine to that can create a story that calls out the bad actors. The big problem is the way the right wing has weaponized race to distract and divide white Americans from seeking common solutions to the common problems that people have across lines of race. Coming up, we look at how Biden can and already has applied race class narrative language into his messaging to the public. And we look at what the Democratic Party risks if it leaves the filibuster intact. When we return. Rubicon is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-first canned wine brand that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev's mission is rooted in taking charge of your choices and responsibilities and giving voice to those who have been historically silenced. In a male-dominated industry, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. They have five varietals, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, as well as a limited-edition extra-fizzy sparkling white wine, which I'll be drinking to celebrate the end of Season 2 of Rubicon. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy, super refreshing, and delicious. 
They have zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. Perfect for New Year's goals like cutting back on sugar or drinking. Bev makes it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine. Perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24-pack is equal to eight bottles of wine, and their four-packs are great for gifting, hosting, and socially distant hangouts. Bev ships straight to your door, and shipping is always free. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all of their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash Rubicon. This episode of Rubicon is brought to you by Karyuma, the sustainable sneaker brand creating cool, seriously comfortable kicks in a way that's better for you and the planet. Style and sustainability go hand-in-hand with Karyuma. From day one, they've been doing things differently, from partnering with ethical factories to sourcing low-impact natural materials, even designing their own single-box carbon-neutral shipping program. Karyuma's 100% vegan EB sneaker made with bamboo, sugarcane, and recycled plastics recently had a waitlist of over 20,000 people. They also have a high-top version, which is water-repellent and offers a snug fit with ankle support. Now the EB family is growing by one. The new EB slip-on has the lowest carbon emissions of any sneaker currently on the market, three times less than the average pair. The EB slip-on pairs their lightweight, perfect-fit bamboo knit with the comfort and ease of a slip-on. They're even machine-washable. Slip them onto Wander Miles or just to grab the mail. Karyuma pioneered a unique knit technology to create the EB slip-on and its siblings, spinning fibers from sustainably harvested bamboo and recycled plastic bottles. When bamboo is cut from the stock, it's capable of regenerating without harming the soil or the plant, just like cutting grass in a field. Speaking of which, you know the feeling of walking barefoot in the grass? That's what inspired Karyuma to custom design their vegan insoles, made with a memory foam cushion, cork, and mamona oil. For every pair sold, Karyuma's reforestation program plants a pair of trees in the Brazilian rainforest, where over 20% of the forest floor is gone. Karyuma ships fast and free in the U.S. and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They use single-box recycled packaging for a carbon-neutral delivery to your front door. And, for a limited time, Rubicon listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Rubicon to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Rubicon for 15% off, only for a limited time. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest is Heather McGee. She's the former president and currently distinguished senior fellow of the think tank Demos and author of the new book, The Sum of Us. In our last episode of season two of Rubicon, we're evaluating the first hundred days of President Biden's presidency and the high expectations everyone has for his next four years. Before the break, we were talking about the race class narrative, which Heather co-developed to help Democratic candidates talk to their voters about shared values. I asked Heather how she would apply the race class narrative to an issue that a lot of you took interest in this season, student debt. In our sixth episode, we talked to writer Matty Glacius about whether President Biden would fulfill his promise to forgive at least $10,000 in student debt. At the time, Matt was worried about potential fallout. You know, student debt, I don't know, man. Like, it's just, uh, the biggest problem with it, I think, is that it feeds into a caricature 
of Democrats as mostly concerned with like pointy-headed people's problems rather than uh, working class people's problems. What's the race class narrative version of that sales pitch mm-hmm. in, that anticipates that as soon as Biden unveils a student debt plan, whether it's at $10,000, $25,000, or $50,000, the right mm-hmm. is going to turn that around and say that's just uh, giving free money to uh, people who are derelict on their debts or whatever? So I think, you know, as I said, you start with the, you know, the common value, right? The idea that every, you know, the the greatest dream of every family is to see their kid, you know, surpass them and have a shot at the American dream. And we all know that college is the ticket to the middle class. And yet a, you know, greedy elite has shortchanged the resources we all need to fund our way to college in the smartest way possible, which is to do it publicly together as a as an investment in our common future, right? And they're pitting us against each other to make us believe that we can't afford to do the right thing for the next generation is basically the way I would do it, right? Is to talk about the way that the people who want to maintain the status quo have robbed us of the resources that we need to fund public college, which is what has happened, right? We've largely had an increase in tuition because of government cutbacks to, to state funding of public college. And the solution is well within reach, but there is an elite that doesn't want to... Uh, extend the promise of the American dream to everyone. Um, And so they're trying to pit us against each other. But we're not going to fall for it. How has Biden stacked up as sort of like he should be the chief exponent of this way of talking (laughs) to the public, at least so far? Yeah, uh, it's a super good question. Um, I have to say that I have been really surprised. You could have knocked me. There it is again. Knocked me. There you go. Is this a bingo? Is this a Rubicon bingo? I've been pleasantly surprised. Every, every, every episode. On January 26th, actually his first presidential address on race, he was signing a set of executive orders on, on racial equity. He actually said, he talked about the disparities of COVID. He talks about the racial justice moment, but then he also said that for too long, we've allowed a narrow cramp of the promise of this nation to fester. We've bought the view that America's is a zero-sum game in many cases. If you succeed, I fail. If If you get ahead, I fall behind. If you get the job, I lose mine. Maybe worst of all, if I hold you down, I lift myself up. We've lost sight of what President Kennedy told us when he said, a rising tide lifts all boats. And when we lift each other up, we're all lifted up. And then he goes on to say that, of course, if we have racial equity and if if communities have what they need to thrive, won't it be better for all of us? Does anyone doubt that the whole nation would be better off? Just imagine. Instead of denying... Now, as someone who just wrote a book about this, who, you know, I didn't know whether or not anybody in the White House had, had read it by January 26th, it was extraordinarily gratifying to see because... I think it is deeply dangerous as a country that is trying to knit together a multiracial demos, right? A multiracial people, a citizenship, that a citizenry that see themselves in one another. For us 
us as progressives to keep the aperture about racism so narrow that we inadvertently reify the zero-sum paradigm of racial competition, the idea that is predominant in white folks' minds because it has been sold and marketed and packaged by elites generation after generation, that progress for people of color has to come at their expense. And so the more that we can tell the truth about the way that racism has been so predominant in our policymaking and our politics that it has distorted our ability to to solve big problems. It has, as I talk about in the pool, in the book, uh, drained the pool of public resources rather than have an integrated set of Americans who benefit from public goods. I think the more that we do that, the more that we are taking the gas out of the right wing's desire to immediately have white Americans look at, you know, well, what's it going to cost me? And why do they get this instead of we get this? And particularly, frankly, a, a white president who, you know, is in many ways, you know, kind of an avatar for the kind of white voter who, who has not been with the Democratic Party for generations now needs to be the one to say, hey, guys, we're all in this together. It's not going to cost you. You know, this is something that we can do that's going to be great for everyone, for your children too. Don't believe, you know, the, I don't know what folksy word he would use about, mm-hmm. you know, the Black community would call it like the okie doke. He has that malarkey word. That's a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> exactly. Don't believe the malarkey, um, you know, that your greatest enemy is, you know, the struggling Black family down the street as opposed to the, you know, the the boss that's cut your hours and shipped your job overseas, you know? So here's how I tie these themes back to the future of the Biden presidency. Um, Mm -hmm. It seems to me that proving the concept of the solidarity dividend requires a world where change is happening. Yes. Um, right? Like whether it's healthcare or voting rights, you need tangible popular change to happen to demonstrate to the white voters you were just talking about that what's good for black and brown people is also good for them. You need the change to happen, but you also, ideally you want it to be coming from Democrats, right? So that people know that one of the two parties is the one that improved their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about these like these minimum wage referenda that pass overwhelmingly, or or even in in Florida, the mm-hmm. felon reenfranchisement initiative that passed overwhelmingly. These initiatives pass on ballots where Democrats lose, and I feel like unless the change is coming from Joe Biden and the Democrats, you're going to have a hard time connecting in people's mind. Mm-hmm. That the Democratic Party is sort of synonymous with those things. They're sort of, you want them to see the whole party the way they currently see Joe Biden. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, we need Democrats to get credit for and make lasting, durable distinctions with the Republican Party on is your life better because of what we've done in power? And that's why I think things like Joe Biden signing a piece of paper and wiping out tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt is a pretty BFD, uh, and he should do it. And, you know, I think about all the great things in the American Rescue Plan and how many of them are, are not necessarily going to get that last mile into the communities that they need to get into and that people won't 
be aware that they're available. Like, you know, the FEMA grants for COVID funerals, right? For funerals of people who've lost people to COVID. People don't know that that exists, right? That's just one example out of thousands from a bill that's already passed that it's going to take organizing and public education for the administration and Democrats to get credit for in a way that's good for politics, obviously, but it's also good for our understanding of what government is and can be in our lives. That's why I think that um, creating a highly visible, right, as visible as the military recruitment centers in, you know, every county in the country, uh, way for people to sign up for a job helping to rebuild this country in some way as a, you know, massive expansion of national service and job corps that, you know, the president has already talked about in a bunch of different realms, whether it's COVID response or asking the Department of Interior to rebuild the Civilian Conservation Corps and and doing it in a way where that experience of signing up to help rebuild this country instead of, you know, delivering groceries and, and takeout food to people, which are kind of the available jobs these days, might actually bring someone from rural Kentucky into a closer relationship with someone from the east side of Baltimore. And that these kinds of big marquee experiences, and, I, and you, there's a reason why I'm sort of talking about things that like young adults can do, I think are the opportunity that the Biden administration has to be firmly associated the same way that FDR and the Democrats were with the New Deal, with these things, these, these life-changing benefits. And I think it's fully within the power of the administration, but it, it takes organizing, so you mentioned student loan reform again. Uh, you mentioned this provision in the bill that, that already passed. What do you see happening if this rapid pace of change that we've seen over the first 100 days cannot continue because of the filibuster? I think that the cynicism of the most engaged parts of the Democratic base, uh, and I don't just mean, you know, people who are very online, but I mean people in the movement for Black Lives and people in the fight for 15 and people in the fight for the reunification of families, students and young people who have organized at a a record rate and and turned out at a record rate, if if they don't begin to see their core demands met, then I think we have a really terrible midterm. So I think in many ways the, the democratic fear of getting rid of a minority veto for fear that they won't be able to use it when they are, again, in the minority is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The, the most yeah. likely thing to put the Democrats in a minority in the future is letting the filibuster stop them from doing what people elected them to do. I think that there are some people who who think or hope that it won't really matter much what happens between now and next November if there's a booming post-COVID economy. Uh, the Democrats can just ride that to victory. And I'm not sure they've grappled enough with how risky it will be to spend 18 months or whatever it is with Republicans spinning endless zero-sum nonsense about whatever, you know, Dr. Seuss mm-hmm. or Mr. Potato Head. And mm-hmm. when the only thing Democrats respond with is like a bunch of uh, failed cloture votes on things like the minimum wage. <laughs> yes. yes. You, just, oh, you just described a pretty apocalyptic scenario to me, honestly, politically. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just, it's it's not, I don't see the path 
to a continued Democratic majority that still has the filibuster stopping us from enacting the agenda that is popular with 60 and 70% of the country across the board. I just don't see it. We, unfortunately, are the party that is the party of governance. And so we've got to be able to govern. And we can't let, particularly this tool that was honed in order to preserve white supremacy and segregation and to defeat civil rights, be something that we care about more than civil rights today and more than economic justice today and more than a real recovery. Because that scenario you just talked about that some armchair experts think is going to be in the future where the economy comes, quote unquote, roaring back is still going to have people with massive amounts of debt, both student debt, rent debt, medical debt. Um, It's going to have you know, usually a two-to-one unemployment rate, you know, black to white. It's going to have uh, black and brown families having less than a quarter of wealth for every dollar owned by the average white family and black college graduates having less wealth on average than white high school dropouts. It's still going to have um, people being paid too little for their work and not enough opportunity to advance and to have the basic needs of running a family from childcare to healthcare to costs of transportation and housing and higher education met in a way that is affordable and efficient, which is to do most of those things publicly. All of those things, even if our unemployment rate writ large is lower, even if our GDP and the stock market is spinning upwards, we're still like, without the things that a filibuster stops, we're actually going to still have about 40 to 50 million Americans who are desperately economically stressed. And that is a massive problem because Democrats have will have very little to show for as a response to something that remains profoundly compelling, which is if it doesn't matter who's in office for your wallet, then how about it matters who's in office for your sense of self-worth, for your sense of belonging, for your sense of status, for your sense of who's in charge and whose side they're on. And that's where we talk about the psychological wages of whiteness, right? Where these symbols of status matter more than actually having health care. And the more that Democrats concede to process right, to legislative process in stopping us from delivering the the material gains that working families of all backgrounds desperately need, the more we are open to the next phase of Trumpism. It's almost like there's an, an analogy between the need to convince people that whatever their intuitions tell them about racial division in America, that there's positive sum to be yielded out of cross-racial solidarity, there's a similar kind of like intuitive thinking in politics that once you've won power, you should not wield it as much as possible because you need to sort of husband this political capital. And if you go out and do things, you're spending it down. Mm -hmm. Where everything we have discussed thus far points to this idea that 
in order to to build a coalition that will sustain Democrats through big headwinds coming in future elections, they need to build political capital by spending almost like there's a positive mm-hmm. sum to be gained from going out and doing all the stuff they're scared to do. Yeah, it's not spending, it's investment. Right. You're investing your political capital and it's having dividends. Solidarity dividends, right? <laughs> right? Um, absolutely. I mean, listen, we can make it very simple. Make people's lives better. We've tried in a bipartisan way to leave it to the quote-unquote market, which is just leave it to the whims of rich people, for 50 years now. And pretty much every single quality lever of quality of life has gone down. It is now time for the party that wrote the formula for broadly shared prosperity and that created the middle class in the New Deal era to get back on the job and make people's lives better. And don't apologize for it, right? I mean, what's the point? What's the point of having power if you can't use it on behalf of people? It's funny because I think the people who get this best are actually Republicans. Like, there's a reason they have decided that the right thing to do every time they're in the minority is filibuster the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if Democrats ever think, like, I wonder why Republicans keep trying to stop us. Like, (laughs) what what is the reason? What are they so scared of? And if if Republicans really thought that these things were going to be so politically toxic for Democrats, that Democrats were going to overreach so far that they were uh, going to, like, never, like, be able to uh, face down voters again, they would just... Let her rip, but they're trying yeah. to stop it. Why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. You know, I think there is, I, so to that point, my concern in many ways about Democrats not fighting hard enough to uh, govern uh, beyond the rules of reconciliation is that many of our most active supporters will grow even more cynical about whether Democrats in power really care about their health care costs and really care about their student loan debt burdens and really care about the crisis of police brutality. And that often happens, right, is that people in power take it for granted, the people who put them in power and are always thinking about the marginal difference of, you know, white moderates, right, are are always thinking about the potential white backlash. And I just don't think that is going to work. I believe that the crucible of the Trump era, the crises of inequality and climate change and the corruption in our democracy and racial injustice and structural racism have fundamentally changed the American people and the Democratic Party in ways that have created a new political calculus. And it's beautiful to have a president who is such a deft politician in many ways that you see those changes and and the opening of, of possibilities in where he has moved ideologically and in terms of his ambition. Um, movements have made this moment for the Biden-Harris administration and uh, a reckoning with who we are as a country and the extent of our cruelty, the extent of racism in our politics and policymaking has 
awakened the hearts and minds of tens of millions of Americans who want to be part of a permanent multiracial anti-racist governing majority in America. And it is that coalition that waded through high water in November and January to do the impossible against a rigged system of gerrymandered districts and a Senate that is completely built to keep minorities in power uh, in the face of a multiracial democracy. And yet here we are with this moment to rewrite the rules of our economy and our democracy to make the American dream more possible for everyone. And I don't think you can put that surge that has happened in consciousness that was awakened not only by the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, but also by the pandemic and the experience of feeling in a visceral way that frankly, I don't think most Americans had ever had to feel, which is that we need each other, that there is such a thing as society, there is such a thing as government, and that we'd be willing actually to change our lives all the way around in order to protect our neighbors. And all of that has created the conditions for the kinds of politics at the state, local, and national level that we haven't seen, you know, certainly in our lifetimes. I think we're there. I think that the American Rescue Plan and the COVID response has been a massive refilling of the pool of public goods. And I think the only thing that might make this administration a 100-day administration, as opposed to an eight-year administration that fundamentally saves America Um, and saves the course of this nation's history and and saves the planet are these little vestiges of a lingering white supremacist control over the greatest democracy the world should ever see. The filibuster, the type of voter suppression and corruption in our democracy that is being waged by a party of the minority over a multiracial democracy. We can get rid of those things. We can rewrite the rules to make democracy real in this country. And it will be a win-win, even for many of the terrified and manipulated white voters who are seeing the Biden administration and the Democratic Party as a threat. It will be a win-win if we get out of our own way and do what we know to be the right thing to do and just have the courage of our convictions to do it. I keep coming back to the same basic idea, too, that the reason to hope that they will do these things is almost because they must. (laughs) There's no other way out. That's right. All right, I'll leave it there. Uh, Heather McGee, thank you so much for joining us on Rubicon. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be with you. Thank you for the show. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrew Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Olivia Martinez. Thanks for listening.